invite you to turn to the Gospel according to John now, to chapter 1, as we've begun a study there, prologue to the Gospel of John, it's the first 18 verses, and breaks up really, I think, into three sections, we're up to the third section, verses 14 through 18 this morning. I'd like to begin reading at verse 1 again, and then um, we'll give our attention especially to verses 14 through 18. John 1, verse 1, the God-breathed scriptures. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's ask for God's help, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we sit before glorious truths this morning that We acknowledge we cannot comprehend. We stammer and stutter to speak of the wonder of the incarnation and of what this means for our lives. We pray that you would come and minister to us by your Spirit in such a way that we in faith could comprehend something of the glory and grace revealed here. And Father, we pray that in beholding the glory along with John, that we too We trust and worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, we stand before breathtaking truth today. It's hard, isn't it, for us to even comprehend what, what all this means. But imagine this morning for a moment that you weren't sitting in church, but you were in a grand auditorium with all the others who had paid $500 a ticket 
And up here was the stage and a curtain behind me, and I was the MC to introduce to you the, the mysterious celebrity of the evening. I was about to come out from behind the curtains. And I introduced the one as the leading scorer in the NBA, won a number of championships, and, and you prepared yourself to, to see a man, maybe a big man, LeBron James, somebody of, of size and stature. Or if I told you that the surprise this evening was, was going to be the, the CEO of Tesla, the, the founder of SpaceX, the, the richest man, the owner of Twitter, you prepare yourself to see a man, Elon Musk. Or if I said tonight we are visited by the leader of the free world, the President of the United States, then you'd be fixed upon the curtain to see coming in President Biden. But what if I said to you tonight that the one who appears to us is the most amazing inventor of all things, that he actually upholds this very room we're sitting in. In fact, he's upholding the planet. And he's been to the farthest galaxies that no one has ever seen. In fact, he set them there. And then your eyes would not be focused upon the curtain behind you, but maybe you would look up and, and think this is some great coliseum that, the, that the, the, the roof is going to open up and we're going to gaze into the heavens. But what if the curtain parted and out walked a short Jewish man? A little, young Jewish man. Do you see? Do you see the contrast that, that John is drawing here? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John is trying to get us to grasp something of the wonder of what has occurred. The climactic moment of world history has come. In the Old Testament, we read that people saw God, Right? We read that God spoke to Moses face to face. We read that the, the elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai and they, they saw the God of Israel. Right? We, we read that, that Moses was, was tucked in the mountain there and the glory of God passed by. And we might think, boy, if I could have just been there to see the glory. And the Bible is telling us what you have in Jesus Christ is, is tremendously greater. God has come down from heaven in human nature. This is where the Gospel of John begins. We noticed before that the other Gospels sort of work their way up, right? The Gospel of Mark, you're sort of climbing a hill till you come to the, to the top and the grand climax and the centurion at the cross after seeing the earthquake and hearing the cry of Jesus. He, he says, surely this was the Son of God. But John, John begins at the top, doesn't he? And he... Instead of showing us simply how it begins to dawn upon the disciples that, that, the, that the carpenter, the, the son of, uh, of, of Joseph, is the son of God, he says right up front that he is. Climax comes to the beginning, and then John shows us the evidence for us and how it is that this reality touches every life. And so this morning we come to this breathtaking wonder that the Word became flesh. Let's look at the distance he traveled, first of all, and secondly, the fullness that he brought us, and then finally at the Father he shows us. Those, those three points as we struggle to speak here. The distance he traveled, 
and the fullness he brought us and the Father that he shows us. Well, you can't, of course, begin to appreciate verse 14. The word became flesh, unless you remember what we looked at in the opening verses, that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. John doesn't say till later who this is. We know who it is. It's, it's the Son of God. And he was there at the beginning of creation. In fact, he was the one, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The Father spoke the world into existence, but his word is his Son, the very agent of creation. And so whether you look to the farthest reaches of the universe or to the ocean depths below, or whether you look at your fingertips, you see his handiwork. It's all made through the Son and for the Son. Not just made through him, but but he is himself God. He's the eternal Son of God. He is from all eternity. He is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is the Holy One, holy, 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 the Son of God. And he's the one who, before coming down by way of the womb of Mary, was worshipped and adored in the heavens by the seraphim, served by the angels who ran at his commands. And then the startling word, the word became flesh. Takes up our human nature, a real human body and soul. Comes as a helpless embryo in the womb of Mary. He's born a helpless babe, cradled in his arms, crying out of hunger and need. Uh, A toddler learning to walk and talk and relate to other people. The infinite and eternal creator in human weakness. In fact, John's making that point. He says the word became flesh. Could have used another word. Could have used some other word to speak of humanity. But he says the word became flesh because that word flesh often in the Old Testament was was a word that signaled the frailty of us in relationship to the Almighty God. And not just our, our natural human frailty as Adam had it before the fall into sin, but our frailty as those under the curse. The human nature now now broken by sin in the miseries of this world. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ does not come to take up the human nature that Adam had it in before the fall. The Son of God comes to take up our human nature, the nature broken by sin and disease and curse. Jesus, of course, is sinless. And yet he comes in our frailty. Isaiah 40 says, All flesh is grass and its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. When I was serving in Beecher, Illinois, we would sometimes do this 4th of July celebration with the town of Beecher. It had kind of a carnival festivities, and, and you could do a booth. So we'd do a booth, and one year we, we had all these flowers given by one of our, some of our members who had a, a greenhouses. And we were going to hand out flowers to, to those who came by our booth. And we, we print on a little card that text from Isaiah 40, all flesh is grass, all its loveliness, like the flower of the field. It, it dies and withers. And so we tried to give flowers to people and point them to this card and say, you know, this flower is beautiful, but it's frail. It's going to die. And so are you. 
but the word stands forever. Anyway, I got used to saying it rather quickly, so quickly, in fact, that I was rattling off one time to some lady, trying to get all the words in before she left, and she just stopped and stared at me with utter contempt, and she said, nice, real nice. <laughs> and I was embarrassed that I had spoken so casually of death. But you know, upon reflection, I, I wonder what words we could use to speak of flesh in a way that's not contemptible, in a way that evaporates the shame? No, we are flesh because we've sinned against God. And we wither and die because we rebelled against our Maker. And the Son of God came down to take up a human nature, born under the law, Galatians says, or Romans 8, verse 3, that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The Son of God came to assume a nature that was needy, and not just needy as a creature, but needy as a sinner, subject to sorrow and pain and disease and death. An amazing thing. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, the word John uses is the, the word for tabernacle. The Word became flesh. The Son of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. Remember God in Exodus, he says to Moses, let, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God says, I'm going to have you guys, I'm going to have Israel build for me a tent, and I'm going to pitch my tent among their tents. The wilderness is their home. It will be my home. I will live among my people. What an amazing thing. But now the tabernacle is not some goatskin canvas, and it's not even now the temple made of stone, but Christ himself is temple. He's tabernacle. He in our flesh dwells among us. And we have to be careful here, don't we, to, to grasp the, the, the glory of this and to, and to hold these things together, that he's 100% God and 100% man. It's not that a man became God, but that the Son of God became also a man while never ceasing to be God. And these two natures, God and man, are not stuck into a blender and mixed up, so we have some, some new kind of thing. He remains God, he remains man. And yet they are not separated, so we have two Christs, the divine Christ and the human Christ. And all that's very important because if, if, if the human nature had been mixed or the divine nature mixed into the human nature, then he wouldn't be man to, to stand in our place and to bear our curse. But if he was a human Christ and there was a different divine Christ, then the human Christ would not have been able to bear the weight of our sin. In Jesus Christ, we have this wonder really an incomprehensible mystery that in the one person of Jesus Christ are two distinct natures forever bound together now, God and man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the rest of the story, the Gospel of John, is the extraordinary story, isn't it? The life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Eternal One in human flesh, the small Jewish man mingling with sinners. The eternal majesty 
among the wicked and the broken, the sorrowing, walking our planet. This really, this really occurred. I think I told you at the last class this meeting, the chairman of our class, I said, just returned from the land of Israel, where he had actually led a tour. And so he'd just been to Jerusalem. He'd just been to these real places. And a week or two ago, my family watched a video of a tour of Jerusalem and and up on the mountains around and so forth, looking over the Kidron Valley and so forth. These are real places. The Son of God took up a real human nature that you could touch and see, and he, he walked on real property on Palestine at a real moment in time to really restore us to God. What John speaks of here is not some myth, it's not some legend, it's not some fantasy, it's not some make-believe thing like I suggested at the beginning of the sermon here, that we might imagine was the reality. That at this moment in history, the eternal Son of God came in the likeness of human flesh, became one of us, and walked the trail of tears here below. This is the wonder. John says we beheld his glory, beheld his glory. He's talking about the apostles that they looked upon and they saw what so many people did not see. They began to see what was veiled in humanity. There wasn't radiant beams of light shining forth from his face, but he was to be seen in his words and his works. Already in the next chapter, in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine, John writes in chapter 2, verse 11, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The disciples saw his glory. In 1 John chapter 1, John will write, 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life, The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. You see, the apostles were witnesses of this glory. They, by the grace of God, they saw in this Jewish man, they beheld the the Son of God. That's what John says here in, in John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It was a glory. Worthy only of the only begotten Son, for such is he. Well, what a wonder. The word becomes flesh. But then notice the fullness that he brought us. Fullness that he brought us. Not only did he traverse this, this enormous chasm from eternity to earth and even to the depths of hell dying for us, but, but through this, what did he bring us? Look at, look at what John says there. In that verse 14, he introduces him here as the word becoming flesh and us seeing his glory, John says. We bear it witness, but then he says, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what's going on there? Well, it is striking that the Holy Spirit wants us to see the glory of Jesus in terms of grace and truth. 
Of all the things that the Holy Spirit could say, you, you need to behold his glory in these ways because it's so exalted. The Spirit says you need to behold a glory that's full of grace and truth. We're not invited to, to see his glory in some speculative way, to learn things about the Son of God that are abstract and far removed from our lives. We are invited to know the Son of God as very practically the thing that our lives need, full of grace and truth. And we read from Exodus 34, because it's quite likely that John is thinking of that here. When God agrees to reveal to Moses his glory, puts him there at the rock, and causes his glory to pass forth, and the Lord sounds forth his own name. He intones his own name, the Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. Those last two words, goodness and truth. The one word, goodness, could be translated love, loving kindness. It's, it's God's covenant love. And the other word, truth, can, can speak to God's faithfulness. It's his faithfulness or his truth. And John may be appealing to those very two things when he says that this glory was full of grace and truth. Isn't it amazing there in Exodus chapter 34 that when God's people have failed them so miserably and God comes to make himself known, he makes himself known as a God of of mercy, of love and truth, covenant faithfulness. And now when God comes down from heaven, when he stoops from glory to become one with us in the flesh, he wills to be known among us. He wants his glory to be seen as a glory full of grace, undeserved favor, and truth, utter faithfulness. And so then John says, doesn't he, in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses... But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the law was was not bad. It wasn't wrong. The law had a great, important function, right? The law revealed the holiness of God. It revealed our sinfulness. And the law of the Old Testament, in terms of all of its ceremonies and sacrifices, it was so many types and shadows and pointers to the Messiah to come. But the law, all the commandments... All the sacrifices could not remove sin. They couldn't restore us to God. They could not bring us to behold our God and to bask in his love. No, what Moses could not do has now come. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When you begin to see this, brothers and sisters, you you begin to recognize how Utterly offensive it is for people to claim that there's a multitude of religions and they all have some piece of the truth. That there's many ways to God. That that truth is relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. Whatever works for you. How enormously offensive this is to God. Because there's only one way we could ever know God. And this was the way that the Son of God should come down to earth and take up our weak flesh in order to die our death and to make God known to us. 
Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. All that the Old Testament pointed to, all that Moses proclaimed, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And therefore, as one writer says, John announces that the things of which he is speaking are not merely true, but are the ultimate truth. You don't get higher than Jesus. You don't get more ultimate than the Son of God. You can't get beyond him. So John is laboring here. Remember last time we know there's two different Johns here, by the way, boys and girls. There's John the Baptist, and then there's the gospel writer, John. They're not the same people. But John, the gospel writer, is, is laboring to convince us when he says that we, we beheld his glory. John, John says we want to proclaim to you what we saw, what we, first John, what we touched, what we looked upon. We proclaim him to you. And then he brings forward the witness of John the Baptist in verse 15. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John was born first. John's ministry started first. But John says, The one who comes after me is actually before me, for he was before me. He's the eternal son. And he's glorious. In fact, John the Gospel writer says, not just that John bore witness, but he actually puts it in the present tense, that John bears witness, perhaps to signal that John the Baptist's witness still testifies to us. As John Calvin says, John's teaching must continually be in force, as if the voice of John were continually resounding in our ears. This is the testimony by which we know our Lord Jesus Christ. And John the Gospel writer says of John the Baptist that he cried out. It was not a whisper. It was not ambiguous. It was openly declaring, this is he. This is the climactic moment of world history. God has come down to us. The great living God. And then that spectacular statement, which actually has the power to change our lives forever. Verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. And why should the Holy Spirit tell us of his fullness if he's not quite aware of our emptiness? Though we think ourselves to be quite full too often. Remember what Jesus had to tell the church of Laodiceans in in Revelation. Chapter 3, he said, you, you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't know that you're flesh. By nature, we're conceited, self-sufficient, so we think. And we, we, we're like children in a third world, world country who are, who are living on the garbage dump and yet have no idea how impoverished we are. We have nothing in ourselves but our sin. We may flatter ourselves, but we are more needy than we'll ever fully realize. And yet Christ tells the Laodiceans and in all of their self-deceit, he says, I'm telling you you're empty. But come to me and buy everything you need. 
gold to make you rich and white garments to cover your nakedness and shame and eye salve to fix your vision. You're spiritually bankrupt. You're impoverished. But come to me and find in me everything you need. And so the Holy Spirit is signaling us here that all the wells of this world are empty wells, dry wells, cisterns that can hold no water. But here's the plentitude of God, the fullness of God in bodily form. The inexhaustible fountain that overflows and overflows and overflows. She is the He's the fountain of God's mercies to our lives. Do you need a heart? Do you need a new heart today that actually loves to worship God? Do you need renewed zeal because your worship, worship is lethargic and indifferent? Well, what you need is found in Jesus Christ. You need energy to minister to your children and wisdom to make decisions for their lives. It's, it's found in Jesus Christ. Do you need patience to wait to marry a godly spouse instead of marrying an unbeliever? It's found in Jesus Christ. You need power to be set free of an addiction? It's found in him who is the fullness of God. You need comfort when you grieve? You need grace to endure suffering? You need forgiveness of sins that plague your conscience? You need a righteousness by which you can die in faith that I stand before God accepted? It's all found in Jesus Christ. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. That last phrase has been, has been argued by commentators for a very long time because there's a preposition there translated for that means instead of grace instead of grace. And so commentators are puzzled. What does that mean, grace instead of grace? But whatever it does mean, it means this much for sure. That the grace of the Lord Jesus pours over his people in such a way that it is grace after grace after grace. Lots of commentators have used the illustration of the ocean waves that that no sooner does one wave begin to exhaust itself than the next one rolls in behind it to fill its place. That it is grace upon grace upon grace that pours over the lives of Christ's people all these undeserved mercies, all this kindness of the loving God who wills to be known as the God of undeserved favor. And so the Jesus Christ set before us, the eternal Son of God, come in human nature, is not one more helper to be set in the pantheon of gods that many people have. And everyone who treats Jesus that way as, as one more that can be added to the assortment of gods that might help me in life, those who treat Jesus that way will be utterly disappointed. But the one who, who comes falling down and saying, I am utterly empty and the gods of this world are nothing. I have no life, can find no life in them. I come to you, Jesus Christ, for everything. You are the fullness of God and you are all grace and all truth. Will not be ashamed. He is a limitless supply. He is an immeasurable reservoir. He is the, the undying fountain of God's goodness towards us. So, what the Old Testament saints knew in part, as they look forward to the coming of the Messiah, has, has now arrived. The ocean of God's love has, 
has come down from heaven. And our problem never then is the resource. Sometimes we think it is, don't we? we? We accuse the resource. You're insufficient for this need. You're not helping me. That's never the problem. The problem is only our slowness to believe, our slowness to pray, our slowness to rely upon Jesus Christ. So the scriptures are inviting us to join the apostles in beholding the glory of the Son come in the flesh. John says we we beheld his glory. We gazed upon, we studied. We were in the boat and we, we saw the winds and the waves die down and we said to ourselves, who is this? And we are to be those students of the scripture who love to ponder the things that God has done. But an odd thing it is that that though this book reveals Jesus Christ to us, and in this book we meet, we meet the fullness of God in bodily form, who is for us all grace and truth. We're often so slow to read this book, collects dust in our houses so often, we sometimes just, just barely scratch the surface as if that's all that, that he's worthy of. Jesus Christ longs for us to find him more deeply in his word, doesn't he? To feed on him. Hunger for him. To want to come to worship and hear his name announced to us. Because it's in the preaching of the gospel that the Lord stands before us and intones his name. Jesus, Jesus, full of mercy and compassion. The infinite God. He's not a small helper. He is everything, the fullness. And John says in 1 John chapter 1, when he repeats so many of these same words from the gospel of John, and says that that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, which we've looked upon, which our hands have handled, this life that was manifested, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, with his Son, Jesus Christ, And then this verse, 1 John 1, verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. Surely the angels must stare at our lives in horror at times when they see us looking for our joy and happiness in so many other places. When the one they worship who bears the the nail wounds in his hands is before them and they're adoring him that the Son of God, he sits there in human nature now, he became one with them, that they might have all their sins forgiven and might might have the fellowship of God, eternal life. And they run to cisterns that can hold no water. And they knock upon doors behind which are empty rooms. And they chase after all these things that are just flying away and will never be seen again. And he who is the eternal Son of God is before them. Why don't they run to him? Why don't they cry out to him? Why don't they bow their heads in fellowship with him? Why don't they love to worship him? 
fullness of God. Everything we need, that our joy may be full. The only way to know all of this fullness is by knowing God. And that's the final thing John tells us here. The final thing John tells us, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He came to show us the Father. For as John Calvin writes, the knowledge of God is the door. The knowledge of God, knowing God, is the door by which we enter into the enjoyment of all his blessings. Now we read about seeing God in the Old Testament, but it was always veiled. The the elders of Israel, they saw the God of Israel, yet they looked through apparently some sapphire pavement. It was obscure. Or Moses, he saw the glory of God passing by, but but God says he, he put his hand over Moses. And then after his glory passed by, he saw the back of God. There's always this, this, this obscurity, right? This hiddenness to God's glory. When the scriptures speak here about seeing God, it's not talking about visibly seeing God. You can't see God. He's invisible. It's talking about knowing God. Knowing the invisible God. And no one has seen God. Nobody has known God. We can't climb into heaven to pull God down. We, we can't make God our insect beneath the microscope. We talk about theology, right, the study of God, but we can't study God. We can't study God. All we can do is study the revelation that God has given to us of himself. And God, who revealed himself in the Old Testament, has now revealed himself much more fully and sending his son, right? Hebrews 1, and in the past, God spoke to the fathers through various means and through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, the express image of the father. And so all those ceremonies and temple curtains hiding the glory of God now are spread. And in the person of his own son, God has come to make himself known Boys and girls, it's interesting language used in verse 18 that that the Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The bosom is the chest. And the chest is sometimes what we speak of as the place where the secrets of our hearts are hidden, right? So we talk about bosom buddies, those who are close friends. We we read later on in, in the Gospel about John reclining, right? In the bosom of Christ, the way they laid around the table, John's head would be near, nearest to the chest of Jesus. And, and here the sense is that the only begotten Son of God dwells in the most intimate relationship with his Father. He knows all the secrets of his Father's heart. And so this one who has come to show us God is, is uniquely qualified to show us God. He is the, the eternal Son of God. He's the only begotten of the Father. He has from eternity dwelt in the lavish love and the intimate union with the Father. And so God, at the climactic moment of history now, has sent us not another prophet, not even an angel from heaven, but he sent us his own beloved Son. And he has declared the Father to us. The word used, declared, there is the, is the word from which we get the word exegesis. Talk about exegeting the scriptures. We try to read out, to explain, to know what they say. Well, Christ is the the exegeter, the exegesis of the Father. He explains the Father to us. 
He's come to make God known. He's stooped down because God wants to be known. And God is sending his son, is saying to you and to me this morning, I want you to know me. I want you to know my glory. I want you to know my glory is full of grace. Many, many people in this world search for God or some God. All of their techniques will fail. There is nothing in man that can find God. This is the wonder of the gospel. We can never do to reach up to heaven. God does. He voluntarily comes down from heaven. And God the Son, taking up our nature. Brothers and sisters, it is a wonder, isn't it? It is a glory. And all of this that our joy may be full. May we give thanks to God, deeply humble, that the Son of God has become one with us in humanity, to show us the Father, to die our death, to reconcile us to God, and to give us joy everlasting. And may we find everything we need in him then. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow before this glory. We, oh Lord, we're ashamed that we so often look away from Jesus to other things. And we pray, Lord, that you forgive us of that, how insulting that is. And we pray that you would strengthen us with the grace to seek you and to rely upon Christ and to listen to him and to gaze upon his glory and to be filled with the grace and the truth that he brings us from heaven. Oh, Father, what wondrous love that you would give your own son. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, what incomprehensible humility and love that you would be united to us, even to die our death. Oh, Holy Spirit, shine upon the Lord Jesus, that we may see his glory, and may he be glorified in us. Amen.